in later years, other secular parties came and went. But none of these secular parties had the guts to show Ram Kenam on TV as we wanted them to, because we had said that this is important to the country, for the country to see. But the governments of the day, belonging to different political parties, never had the courage to show this film. Hi, you're listening to State of South Asia, a podcast from Himal South Asian, where we speak to some of the best minds on the region today to unpack crucial issues affecting our politics, cultures, environments, and societies. I'm your host, Nayantara. When a documentary film is still relevant, more than 30 years after it was made, it should normally be cause for celebration. But one filmmaker has publicly said that he is disappointed that one of his most acclaimed films from the early 90s is being talked about again as critical commentary on present-day India. You may be less surprised when I tell you that the filmmaker is Anand Patwardhan and the film is Ram Kenam. For the last 50 years, Anand Patwardhan has been making documentary films on many of the most crucial socio-political issues facing India. The spread of communalism, intolerance, injustice and discrimination and the resistance to these through anti-caste and rationalist movements, as well as much more. He has won several international accolades even as some of his films have been banned on Indian television from time to time. Ram Ke Naam was released in 1992, just months before militant Hindu activists demolished a 16th century mosque, the Babri Masjid, in Ayodhya, claiming that it was built on the exact spot where Lord Ram was born. The film covers those frenzied days of the movement to supposedly reclaim the birthplace of Ram, the Ram Janmabhoomi movement, and of the BJP leader L.K. Advani's Ratyatra across India, exhorting Hindus to go to Ayodhya to build a Ram temple. The film captured the hate and hysteria of communalism, the fear and despair of its victims, and the illogic of extremism. On January 22nd this year, Narendra Modi consecrated the Ram temple in Ayodhya as the Prime Minister of India, fulfilling this long-held dream of the Hindu rat. Anand Patwardhan is here now to talk about the making of that film, how much and how little has changed since it was released, and what it means for India 32 years later. We are recording this episode on January 30th. Anand, thank you for joining us on this podcast. When you began shooting the film, you couldn't have known that you would end up capturing one of the first attacks on the Babri Masjid. In those initial days, how did you know that you had to make this film? So um, I've been, I was following the rise of religious fundamentalism for quite a few years before the Ram Temple issue began. Around the mid-1980s, I started filming. Uh, wherever there was communal violence in the country, wherever I could reach, uh, I focused on that. Not just communal violence, but the, uh, the use of religion, uh, revival of religion. So I, I had actually filmed in Rajasthan when the Sati took place in 1987. I filmed in Punjab where the Khalistan movement was at its peak. Uh, and uh, when the Delhi massacre of Sikhs took place, I filmed with the widows after that in Delhi. And so I was generally making films about the rise of, of the use of religion for political ends uh, and the violence that flowed out of that. Uh, so Ram Kenam was ended up to be the what I out of all this material that I shot for ten years, 
I made eventually made three films with that material. So one was on Punjab and and the situation um, in Punjab at the time. So that film was called In Memory of Friends, Una Mitran Di Yad Pyari. Because there, Hindus and Sikhs were traveling through the countryside of Punjab, uh, fighting against the Khalistani movement, but also against the state, because ordinary people were trapped in the middle of this fight. And they were spreading the message of Bhagat Singh, who had written, Why I'm an Atheist. And and he had actually, in the 1920s and 30s, he wrote against the rise of religious fundamentalism. Uh, and that class struggle would be uh, a way to fight this. But by the 1990s, uh, when the Hindu upsurge began, by the way, in, in 1984 itself, the Hindu Dharam Sansad, the the Organ, uh, the, uh, a meeting that took place in Delhi at the time uh, had already identified Ayodhya as a site where they could reap the dividends of, of what they were doing by claiming the Babri Mosque. Uh, and then they have also identified Kashi and Matra and 3,000 other mosques. So this was going to be a long struggle to essentially to create a Hindu nation. Uh, so so this this finally led to the movement in Ayodhya, uh, which was a which was actually begun in a sense by L K Advani, who was a BJP uh, minister, who rode an air conditioned Toyota across the country, gathering people to go and attack the mosque and and build a temple in its place. So I started following that journey, and I filmed in various places where the where this Toyota, which was disguised as a rath, as a chariot, was traveling. And the mayhem that it caused in its path. People were killed in many places wherever the rath went. And uh, we finally, uh, finally the rath did not actually reach Ayodhya. Because in when it came to Bihar, uh, the chief minister of Bihar, Lalu Prasad Yadav, actually stopped the rath there and arrested L.K. Advani. And but the car sevaks, the, the the people who were the the so-called pilgrims were actually fanatics who were following this journey to Ayodhya, they continued. So in in October 1990, the, the attack was the, the date chosen was the 30th of October 1990. Uh, we finally were able to get to Ayodhya because actually there was a a secular government in power in Uttar Pradesh at the time, which had said that they would protect the mosque. They would because it was a national monument. The, the mosque was a declared national monument. So they said it's our constitutional duty to protect this mosque and we will not allow anybody near that mosque. Uh, so there was curfew, impose everything. And it was difficult for people like us who were considered as journalists and camera people to enter because they were blocking all the... But finally, we managed to get in. And uh, lo and behold, on 30th of October, I, in fact, on the, the day before, I could see that thousands of uh, car sevaks were already making their way to Ayodhya. So even though they were supposed to protect the mosque, thousands of people were arriving uh, to do this attack. 
so we filmed that day's proceedings. I was also lucky enough to film uh, uh, the priest of the Ram Temple at the time, uh, who was Pujari Lal Das, who was a who was the temple priest appointed by the court. Because I'll I'll take you back uh, again in time to 1949, uh, soon after Indian independence in 1947. Uh, what had what happened then was in December on a night in December. The 22nd of December night, um, some miscreants broke into the mosque and installed Ram idols in the mosque. Uh, and then the district magistrate, K.K. Nair, uh, he actually refused to remove the mosque, even though they had been Ill illegally placed. Uh, and it turns out he was a Hindutva supporter himself, because years later, after he retired, he became... Um, he became an MLA in the Jansang, which was the earlier version of the BJP. So he joined the Hindu party and so revealed his colors, but in, he was actually an administrator. He was supposed to have you know, enforced the law, which he didn't do. Uh, the people who had broke and entered the mosque were charged for what they did. They were actually in jail for some time, but then they got bail and they, they came out. So when I arrived, we were just two of us that, that went in, myself and Parvez, a friend of mine who was doing sound recording with me. So we, when we actually, uh, we were again lucky to find one of the priests who installed the idol in the mosque. Uh, and he gave us an interview because he was proud of what he had done. Because he was in fact a little upset that nobody was paying him any, any attention. You know, all the glory was being captured by the politicians of the day, the Hindu right-wing politicians, and nobody was remembering that he had installed the idols in the mosque. Because the story they put out, uh, they, they, they made propaganda videotapes uh, showing that Ram miraculously appeared in the, in the mosque. And they, there was a videotape which is included in, in our film, Ram Kenam, uh, which shows uh, this baby Ram, a, a child actor, obviously, uh, dressed up as Ram inside the mosque. And, you know, multiple camera, you know, they, they had many images of this God to show that what a miraculous person he was. So there was like six or seven little baby Rams inside the mosque. Uh, so this, this, Videotape was then circulated all over the country to tell people that Ram had miraculously appeared in the mosque. Now, the other background to all this is that while all this was happening, Doordarshan, which is our national TV broadcaster, remember that in those days, uh, TV was restricted. It wasn't multiple channels like we have today. And Doordarshan was the government channel which reached all over the country. So on this government channel, the government was, which was not a BJP government, by the way, this government was showing a Ramayan TV serial. So in the lead up to the assault on the mosque, all over the country, people were watching a Ramayan TV serial, which actually made the Ram, uh, you know, Ram story popular all over the country because people would drop whatever they're doing to watch this TV program. So that and that this was done by a secular government, which the same government that refused to telecast our film, 
Ram ke naam on TV. Because they said that will create uh, enmity between Hindus and Muslims, uh, which was quite absurd because the film was actually trying to show that the ordinary people of Ayodhya were not fighting amongst each other. Hindus and Muslims had been living there in harmony for, for decades, for, for hundreds of years. Do you think that the government was trying to counter the BJP and Advani's narrative by doing its own promotion of the Ram story? It's hard to understand because, uh, I mean, the, the Ramayan TV serial was a depiction of the Ramayan story as told by Tulsi Das. Um, and that was written in the 16th century. Tulsi Das Ramayan, for the first time, in the 16th century actually reached the ordinary people of North India because it was for the first time it went from Sanskrit text that was a Valmiki Ramayana, yes. ancient Valmiki Ramayana was a Sanskrit text. Uh, so only priests and a few, few priests could actually knew that story. But it's only after Tulsidas Ramayana that Ram became a popular god. Because up to that point, anywhere in the country, you will not find traces of Ram uh, temples. So this claim that this temple was there through history and through time, and Babur came and demolished it and built a, uh, built a mosque in its place, is absurd because there were hardly any Ram temples anywhere in the country. Because Ram, as I said, was a Sanskrit story, um, not had not reached the popular imagination till after Tulsidas became popular. And when we reached Ayodhya in 1990, we found many Ram temples, not just one at this spot that they claimed to be the birthplace, but there were 20 other temples that claimed that Ram was born here. Because any, any temple that could establish that Ram was born in its premises would naturally increase its money intake because there would be more pilgrims going to Ram's birthplace. So everyone was claiming this is Ram's birthplace. Right. So you you do point out there are several factors that led up to that moment. Uh, you know, the, the one that you show at the end of the film and then two years later, the demolition of the Babri Masjid. Um, in your film, you, you show that, you know, the October 30th date was chosen because there was also the Parikrama that's happening there. So maybe the Parsevaks could kind of there were pilgrims coming anyway. That every year, pilgrims would come to that site to do the parikrama, which is like a religious, you know, encircling the holy space, and it was a holy pilgrimage. And there's no absolute harm in that, in the sense that it wasn't a violent thing. It had gone on for many, many generations, and even Muslims participated in the parikrama in the old days. Muslims gave water to the devotees and you see that also in the film people talking about how there was no enmity between Hindus and Muslims. So again, I'll, I tell you that in, in 1857, 1857 uh, was the time when Hindus and Muslims united against the British. It was the what is called the first war of independence by us and the British call it the Great Mutiny. So, and the British almost lost uh, that war and they would have been thrown out of India in 1857, but for the fact that they were able to buy off certain sections, uh, create spies amongst, uh, amongst their opponents who would report to them. And so the, in the end, the British prevailed and did massacres of 
of all the freedom fighters, all those who were fighting against them. You, If you go back in your history books, you see images of people being hung from trees, people being blown up by um, on cannons, people who whoever opposed the British in those days. And ironically enough, two of the people who they executed after they recaptured and they, after they prevailed in 1857, two of those were people from Ayodhya, uh, one Muslim and one Hindu leader who had built this Hindu-Muslim pact. And they were executed in the, there's a memorial to them, which is now not visible, but it, um, so this was uh, Baba Amir Ali and Ram Charan Das, uh, who, were, were, who were influential in Ayodhya at the time and were fighting the British. So that memory is completely forgotten in India. Nobody talks about them. Nobody talks about the sacrifice they made and the unity that they made. And among, in the pact that they put together, uh, finally they agreed that we will not fight about Ram's birthplace. We will both pray in the same location. So Muslims prayed in the same location and so did Hindus in different sections of that mosque compound. So that that prevailed till 1949 when these idols were, were surreptitiously put into the mosque at night. And after that, the government of the day, Nehru was in power in the, in the center and Congress was in power in Uttar Pradesh. But still, for some reason, they didn't take it seriously enough or what, I'm not sure, but they didn't remove the idols. They believed KK Nair said that removing the idols will cause law and order problems. So those idols remained, uh, but Muslims were allowed to pray in the compound of the mosque and... Uh, and Hindus were allowed, you know, Muslims were allowed to pray, pray in the mosque and Hindus were allowed to pray in another part of the compound. <clears throat> so that status quo again got changed in uh, 19, of course, in 1992, as you know, the mosque was demolished completely. Those idols disappeared that they had installed in 1949. And some other idols were put. And then now, recently, before January 22nd, a third set of idols were put. So, so there's no sanctity to the idols. There can be anything. They just buy it and keep it or have it made and put it there. And then Mr. Modi came and opened the idols' eyes. So a human being went there to open the eyes of God. Right. A quick note for those tuning in before we go further. Himal's in-depth, independent coverage of the whole of South Asia relies on the support of listeners like you. Please sign up to our newsletters to keep up with our latest stories, podcasts, events, and more. You'll see a sign-up link to our newsletters in the episode notes. And you can also sign up by visiting our website at www.himalmag.com. Now, back to our conversation with Anand Patwardhan. On October 30th, 1990, as you have very clearly shown in the film, the police, who were largely of upper-caste families, stood down. There is a shot in your film where you can see them retreating after a speech was made by one of the Kar Sevak leaders. And, and being congratulated, uh, thanked by the Kar Sevaks who thanked them after the incident saying that they allowed us entry. So what had happened was that the government of the day was had given orders to stop the, uh, to save the mosque, not allow it to be attacked. Uh, one section of the police was doing its job 
And so a few Karseviks were killed that day trying to break the mosque. Uh, but a large section of the administration and police allowed the entry of thousands of people. Hundreds of people in those days. Thousands came two years later in December when they actually did the demolition. At that time, by that time, the BJP was in power in the in the state. And they allowed, fully allowed the entire demolition to take place. Right. So we've talked about, you know, what you have shown in the film. Uh, but I'd like to ask you, you know, what it was like making the film, what it was like to be among um, the rather frenzied mobs at the time, what it was like to reach out to other people who were scared about what was happening, uh, who told you that, uh, you know, I, I think you, you do speak to a Dalit man who says that this is not, you know, this is not what's needed. The building of a Ram temple is not what's needed. What were those moments like to interact with people on both sides uh, of the spectrum? And how did you make decisions of what you were going to shoot, what you were going to keep, how you built this narrative to show, you know, what, what we see in the film today? So we were, we were filming whatever came we came across. So we were not choosing very carefully because it was in the spur of the moment all kinds of things were happening so we we're just keeping our camera running and filming doing interviews randomly with people i once i realized that there was a caste dimension to what was happening uh, i slowly understood that i started asking people their caste after the interview most of the time i asked this question at the end of the interview not at the beginning so you hear what their views are and then you uh, you understand who is saying what they're saying. And you realize that by and large, the working class and the so-called lower caste are saying they're not interested in the mosque because, I mean, they're in the temple because they never go there. They're not allowed there. So uh, what is it to them? And, uh, and while the elite caste, I mean, the, the upper caste, whether it's the... Uh, you know, especially the Brahmins and the upper caste were for the temple being built. So you see this sort of almost clear divide at that time. But unfortunately, I don't think uh, the same situation exists today because the right-wing propaganda has seeped deep into society. Uh, they, have, they have taken special care because they, the right wing also understood that their base was limited to the upper caste elite. So they have actually worked hard to include the uh, so-called lower caste in their ranks, especially the OBCs, the other back backward castes. They have a big base in the other backward castes now, which they didn't have at that time. So things are much more difficult and, and the communal poison is much deeper today than it was in 1990. The divide between urban and rural is also uh, was was clear in those days. It's less clear today, although it still does exist. You know, in the film, you also kind of puncture the logic. Uh, there really isn't very much logic. When you ask uh, several of the Karsevaks about when Lord Ram was born, uh, if they built so uh, strongly that Ayodhya is the birthplace, you try to get them to establish when Ram was born, and they really don't have an answer to that. I asked them, how come you know exactly where Ram was born when you have no idea of when he was born? 
So because they, the answers they gave were thousands of years ago. You know, somebody said, no, millions of years ago. And then one of the priests there said it was in Treta Yuga, which is in before history began. So it, it's as vague as that, before history began. So if it is before history began, then how can you say where the incident took place? So it is very clear that logic doesn't really play a big part in this kind of rallying of people to take such extreme actions. What what do you feel about that? How are so many people drawn towards going and demolishing a structure that has stood for many centuries uh, when there is no logical argument for it? No, because one particular party, party and political force, I would say political force because they don't operate only as a political party. They have, it's a hydra-headed uh, monster in the sense that they have so many wings. There are, some are constitutional, some are not constitutional. So they all took, they all come together and they're called the Sangh Parivar. They, are, they have the, the RSS, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the Bajrang Dal, and there's so many different offshoots of all of these. Um, so they all came together to do this one job. Uh, they were created, some of them were created exactly for this purpose, like Bajrangal was created actually for this. And they're, they are also a kind of caste-divided organizations. The RSS largely has Brahmin leadership. Uh, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad also has upper caste leadership. Bajrangal has OBCs, other backward castes, and sometimes some Dalits. So, so they have different people who have to do different tasks. And by the way, there's uh, not just my film. There were uh, there was a sting operation done, uh, I think, uh, about four or five years ago by Cobra Post, um, where they actually interviewed the people who had done the demolition. On hidden camera, they interviewed, uh, talked to these people, and they understood that the RSS had actually made sure that some of their followers died that day. They put them in the front knowing that there'll be police fighting them and some people would be killed. And then they had a plan which they implemented of taking the ashes of those whom they said had been killed by the state all over the country in another chariot journey to commemorate the martyrs of of those who were trying to liberate the Babri Mosque. So this was a, these are all kind of part of their arsenal of how to build up the frenzy. Sure, but also among people who uh, who responded to this call, the song's call, uh, to go to uh, to Ayodhya on October 30th. Um, I mean, we, we say so much now that we live in a post-truth world, but there was there's so much of an element of post-truth in that where actually people don't really uh, care about fact. Yeah, so that's why I always say that this, this whole movement has nothing to do with religion. Religion is just the dressing on the top. It's all about political power capture and financial power capture. Because again, as I told you, any temple that established that Ram was born here would get huge donations. And huge amount of money was made in this whole Ayodhya process. And that is also documented in the film. There's a, an interview with the income tax officer who had actually found the Vishwa, held the Vishwa Hindu Parishad guilty of embezzlement uh, of the funds that were raised to build the Ram temple. 
that people had eaten up this money. The priests of the temple also made that allegation that people were building their own houses with the bricks that they, uh, the the devotees had sent to donate to build the temple, uh, were actually used up to, for building their own houses and to put in their own accounts. Uh, and the income tax officer also uh, talks about how uh, he was sidelined. He was actually taken off the job uh, because he had found them, uh, you know, in breach of the rules. Because they they had raised money from abroad. They had raised money in England and America through their devotees who were being money that was being sent to build the temple, and that was not allowed by the Reserve Bank of India because they were going against the rules of of bringing in foreign exchange, uh, bringing in money from abroad. Uh, so all of these facts have been forgotten today. Anand, uh, you know, I was in school at the time that this happened, but from what I remember, you know, after the demolition of the Babri Masjid and in the 90s, there was a sense that the people who had done this were on the fringe. They, they were the extreme elements. Um, is that how you saw it as well while making this film? And of course, has the Finch become more mainstream now, 30 years later? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, yes, we did think that that was the Finch. And we did think, I mean, even when I was there on October 30, 1990, I was hoping that, you know, good sense would prevail in the whole country. And that um, the film that we were making would be a good and timely warning about what would happen if you keep appeasing the fundamentalist forces. Uh, I probably was wrong that there was, there, it was a deeper penetration of the movement even in those days than I gave uh, credence to. Uh, but still they were, you know, it, it, the election results in those early days um, show that they, they were not popular because even after the first attack, the BJP didn't win the election. They won. They won the yes. They won later uh, and put their own BJP government come to power by 1992, and they enabled the demolition. But even after that, they didn't stay in power long. Um, and in in uh, they in later years, other secular parties came and went. But none of these secular parties had the guts to show Ramkenam on TV as we wanted them to, because we had said that this is important to the country, for the country to see. But the governments of the day, belonging to different political parties, never had the courage to show this film. Finally, we went to court, and the court ruled in 1997 that they had to not only show the film, they had to show it on at prime time on national TV. So in 1997, the film was broadcast. And I still meet people today who saw the film that day on TV. Uh, if they, the judges ordered that it be shown at prime time. And so at 9 p.m. people saw the film and many people saw it across the country. Because as I said, in those days, there was still more Doordarshan watching than any other channel. But that was just the one single TV telecast. Had there been a secular, genuinely secular government, they would have shown films like this. Mine is not the only film that was made in that vein. There were other things like that, which were fighting the rise of fundamentalism. But these things never made their way to the national consciousness.
Right. So, it, you know, if we could trace that from, you know, what happened in the early 90s to this moment, the consecration of the temple on Jan 22nd, 2024, where it's become almost a mainstream accepted idea to some people, even inevitable that uh, this temple should have always been there. Um, and, uh, you know, it any the opposition to that, the kind of reminders of the price we've paid for that is a whimper at most. Um, there are other factors that have contributed to this kind of this trajectory. Uh, one of the things maybe that along with the tremors to secularism in the early 90s, there was also the shift from the kind of Nehruvian socialism to, um, you know, I mean, we liberalized our economy. And tell us a little bit about how that played into this whole. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, that, that, you know. Uh, 1980s, I identified 1980s when they, they identified the places that would be controversial that they could reap some benefits out of. The Ayodhya temple, Kashi and Matra, and all these religious sites that they could create a conflict out of. Now, this is the same period where the previous economic model, which was a kind of mixed economy of private and public partnership, uh, private uh, elements as well as public, uh, uh, you know, ownership of uh, many things like including the banks had been nationalized by the government. There were, there were many things that actually were creating a unique economic experiment of a mixed political economy uh, between private and public. And by the 80s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Collapse of the Soviet Union on the one hand, the fact that China went down the capitalist road, started to uh, change from Mao's China to uh, China that, you know, when Mao himself met Nixon and there was an American partnership going on and, and slowly the Chinese economy was built around capitalist model. Uh, so uh, the idea of socialism itself had become unpopular, was becoming unpopular, and the and the privatization process was in full swing, but was gathering force. And in this period, I don't think it's an accident that the rise of religious fundamentalism all over the world and you no know, ethnic identity issues all over the world came to the forefront because as the idea of socialism as a glue to create a society was denigrated, was was you know, I'm not that I'm a supporter of Stalinism or any kind of the excesses that the left did in the countries where they were in power. I, I believe in a democratic system. But the idea that socialism itself was a was a horrible word uh, had taken root and it was replaced by religious identity everywhere. As this shift was taking place, religion was getting more and more important ethnic identity was getting more and more important. And because, in my view, the world is controlled by the arms industry. And it started many, many decades back. The collapse of the Soviet Union was bad because it, it shifted the balance of power. In, uh, there was only one superpower and they were calling the shots. And in India, that played out. So you had the rise of Hindu fundamentalism, you had the rise of Sikh fundamentalism in Punjab. You had different ethnic identity issues being raised all over the country. And the, and the 
glue that held us together was falling apart. Right. You have, you know, of course, we've been talking about Ram Ke Naam so much, but you have made several films. I mean, you, you spoke about the films that you had already made before that. You have continued to do that. Uh, there's Jai Bheem Comrade. There is a Reason or Vivek as it is in Hindi. Um, so my, my question was, what has it been like to continue to work in this space where you are talking about people who have either been perpetrating religious extremism or have been the victims of that? Um, and it keeps happening. What has it been like for you to work in that space? The thing that bothers me about my own films is the fact that they're so badly underutilized. The, the viewership has never reached a critical mass where like the whole country has seen it or or at least the, the large sections of society have seen it and can debate it and discuss it. That is, it has never reached that. We, we are still in the margins in terms of the viewership. Whatever, you know, the one day it was shown on Durdashan was the only time that this film got a mass screening. But that was back in 1997, one, one evening. Uh, by and large, and even though activists show the film uh, even in the last one week there have been many attempts to show Ram Kedam all over the country and these attempts have been met by violence from the right wing by by the support to the right wing by the police so many of the screenings were stopped halfway people were arrested people were beaten up in different places so it happened in to my knowledge it has hap it happened in Hyderabad it happened in uh, Kerala. So one state is Congress ruled, the other state is left ruled. It happened in Pune, which is, of course, uh, Maharashtra is the right wing is in power. And it happened in Ashoka University in Delhi. Again, halfway the screening was stopped. But the positive thing is that all these places, the people continued to try to show the film. So if it got stopped one day, they, they went and showed it the next day. They, they managed to, because you can't actually fully suppress a film like this, which is on the net, uh, at least so far not. If we were in Kashmir, they would have done it. They would have banned the internet. But here right now, they've not reached that stage for the whole country. So the film does get seen, but it's not a critical mass. It's not, it's not like the Ramayana, which got shown, or the Mahabharat, which got shown, the epics for every week, prime time, the whole country was stop and watch TV. So that's the power of cinema. And, and that power has never been harnessed by films like mine. Uh, do you get trolled for your work, for what you say? Of course, yeah. But, um, you know, trolls, where in the few places where the films are shown, like whether it's YouTube or Facebook, there is, you can see the, you can see the comments. So uh, they get trolled that way. Those kind of things will happen. Have these kind of um, angry or violent reactions, are they worse in the internet era than they were in the 90s? No, in those in the 90s, there was no internet of that kind. So you, you couldn't gauge it. Today, there's all of this stuff, which we feel happy that we have the internet because at least we can get our stuff out a little bit. But the right wing has far greater access to that same internet. Uh, all this, all the stuff that they're doing is done through the WhatsApp university. They, they, every bit of fake news is multiplied millions of times 
through the internet or the phone system. The fact that I'm I'm worried that uh, they they predict that in a few years every Indian will be on the net. The net penetration, uh, which is right now I think at about forty eight percent, is going to hit a hundred percent very shortly, and that means the amount of people brainwashed by those who are controlling the who have the money to you know after all censorship doesn't happen just because the government has a censor board like all our films have to go through censor procedure uh, but censorship doesn't happen only through the state it happens through who has the money who will spend the money to advertise to get the eyeballs to buy space and put it out there just like you can't read a single newspaper without having Narendra Modi's picture on the front page, a paid advertisement. Every paper, image of the prime minister is on every billboard, whether it's a petrol pump or anything. You you can't walk around without seeing this face. So someone always benefits from movements like these uh, that are supposedly about fame. Who benefited? in you know in the ram janma movie movement in the late 80s and 90s who were the beneficiaries who are the beneficiaries now according to you so uh, even in in those in the film it says that by a single issue of ram temple they went from two seats in parliament to 88 and then from 88 they went much higher and finally they came to power they they had a single issue till the time that they actually came to power now they have a few more issues now they're talking about development and for them development is just enabling the billionaires of this country that is what they call development giving all the resources to mr adani and mr ambani is their idea of development and they have undermined even the little good that the congress did in the past like the manrega the the employment guarantee scheme the, the the fact that people could have jobs they have undermined that we have huge amount of joblessness today we have the only kind of real jobs that are available are in the security forces whether in the army or the police or the guards of rich people's houses the housing the gated communities that employ security guards so this is the place where working class people can get jobs you actually have riots of people who are trying to get into the army because that's a secure job so it's actually scary to think of the future where this continues because we could end up with genocide because we are headed in that direction the kind of hatred against the muslim community that is uh, now being spread all across the country you talked about um the court appointed priest uh, laldas who really was talking the language very heartfelt secularism secularism i would call him a liberation theologist he was mm-hmm. using the idiom of religion he was a priest he was saying ram ram didn't stand for all this and you know you can interpret ram in a in the way that he was doing which is that ram was the the king who wanted to help everybody that he didn't care whether you were poor or rich or anything that ram was for all so by that logic ram was in even the muslims would have ram meaning ram meaning ram cared about all creatures that was his interpretation of ram right and 
Again, on Jan 22nd this year, when as the consecration of the Ram Mandir was happening, uh, there was a social media conversation about uh, this man who very unfortunately was murdered a year after the events that you recorded. Two years after the events, because I recorded in 1990, the mosque was demolished in 92 and Pujari Lalas was murdered in 93. Right, okay. At the time... For a while after, even after I had done the interview, even when when I was doing the interview, and for a few years later, he had bodyguards because he was already under threat mm. because of his views. And in fact, the first screening that I ever did of Ram Kenam was done in Lucknow, where he came to the screening. And I asked him, said, now you're on the screen and, and people are going to see what you're saying and isn't that dangerous for you? You know, what, what do you think? And he you know, laughed and he said, I'm so happy that you made this film and I'm your, I said what I said because I believe in you and I want you to spread the film. I want you to say it. I'm not afraid of any. We've talked about, uh, you know, the communalism versus secularism, but do you think in the 30 years between the making of the film and now, 34 years? Four years since I shot. Yes. In 1990 and is now 2024. Yes. So in that time, has the idea of secularism itself changed for us? No, it's become a bad word. Mm. I mean, uh, many people don't want, I mean, they know it's written in the constitution, but they, they want to pretend that Indira Gandhi inserted those words, that the original constitution didn't, Dr. Ambedkar didn't have it in the constitution. The reason Dr. Ambedkar didn't have it in the constitution in 1950 is because the whole constitution is suffused with the idea of secularism. It wasn't necessary. It was not at that moment uh, deemed like you have to put it in words. It didn't have to be explicit. It didn't have to be explicit because it's implicit in all parts of the constitution. Believe The constitution believes in equality. I mean, and uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity was there from the beginning. But the all uh, the word has become denigrated and we're, uh, and even in the film L.K. Advani calls us pseudo-secularists and that became a popular term so I actually have a shot where L.K. Advani is making the speech say again pseudo-secularists and I the camera focuses on the chariot wheel of his Toyota which is a painted wheel and then comes down and shows the tire underneath the actual reality is that it's a it's a Toyota car and not a chariot. That is pseudo-religion. Right. So again, earlier this month when everyone was heading to Ayodhya and all this, the ceremonies were happening there, uh, there was a lot of, you know, on TV and otherwise there was, the term used was the, the movement of, of the Ram Bhumi movement has culminated in the uh, temple at Ayodhya now. But it hasn't really culminated, right? Because people now are talking about the Gyanbapi uh, mosque, uh, temples in Kashi and Mathura. Yeah, there's 3,000 more mosques on the list. Mm. And when they run out of those 3,000, they will find some other way to demonize Muslims because they need some community to demonize. And it's no longer fashionable to demonize the Dalits. The, the, it's not politically acceptable for them to talk against Dr. Ambedkar. Or, you know, they do oppress the Dalits still. They, Dalits are still killed in the countryside and even in the cities, forced to commit suicide as Rohit Bermula did. And so all that is happening. But 
uh, in terms of political language, they're very careful about not offending the Dalit community. And they're, they're politically also, they're trying to, and the backward caste, as I said, they, they're putting key people in power that will then give them that vote. So I think this is all the more reason that um, your film is being circulated. Uh, once again, I think more than in the last few years, uh, all the more reason for everyone to watch it. It's an absolutely brilliant film. And I know that you said you said that you're disappointed that it's still relevant, but I think it still has a lot of work to do. Before I let you go, if I can just ask you, what are three films um, that you have enjoyed watching that you would recommend to others? What are... Well, I, I watch a lot of documentaries um, rather than fiction. I do like a, some of the fiction that is there. And there's some good fiction films that are being made now also. But there's a huge number of very powerful documentaries being made that, again, the problem with documentaries is that they don't get airtime of it. You know, they, They're not easy to find and they're not easy to... Uh, very few groups all over the country are actually showing these films enough, but they are being made. So any standout films in the recent or older ones that come to mind? Yeah, there, there's quite a few. Not one, it would be unfair to just talk about one or two, but uh, you know, I I saw a film on the police attacks on the Arigad Muslim University, a student from Jamia Eras has made that film, but there are there's another film that I'm hoping to see, which is on the Shaheen Bagh resistance, um, which I will soon see. I have got it now, but I haven't watched it yet. Um, and yeah, there are, there are plenty of very powerful... I just came from a festival in Kolkata that organized uh, documentary screenings, and it was houseful on each of the days, and very powerful films that were shown there, some older and some new ones. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for spending so much time and having this in-depth conversation with us. My, my pleasure. That was filmmaker Anand Patwarthan speaking to Himal South Asian for the State of South Asia podcast. This episode was edited by Ritika Chauhan. You can find many more stories on the politics of the Ram Mandir on our website, www.himalmag.com. You can also read reportage and analysis from across South Asia, listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletters to keep up with Himal's work. We'll be back in four weeks with another in-depth conversation on the next episode of State of South Asia. Thank you for listening and see you then.